and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. How would you feel if I told you that I was going to give you 30,000 shares of Apple Incorporated? Excited. Excited. Um, You'd probably say to me, and I'm going to make you King of England. But let's imagine that I could do that. Let's just imagine for a moment that I could give you 30,000 shares of Apple Incorporated. You'd be excited, right? Yes. Now, suppose I told Mackenzie that I, could give, I would give her 30,000 shares of Apple Incorporated. Do you think she'd be excited? No, not the same. In fact, I could probably, you could probably turn around and trade her those 30,000 shares of Apple Computer for two shares of a hot fudge sundae, right? (laughs) Because at her age, at the age of two, she doesn't have a real appreciation or understanding of what that means, of what it would be to have 30,000 shares of Apple Computer Um, valued right now at $108 per share, which would give you something like um, $3 million. So, and even telling her that probably still wouldn't get her all that excited about it, would it? She'd still probably go for the hot fudge sundae, even if I told her it was worth $3 million. Because even if I explain it to her, It's not something that she's ready to really understand. She's just not quite capable of understanding that yet. Last week, um, Mike did a great job of teaching about the great mystery. And we were talking about it afterwards and how when people first hear that truth, whether it's in the Power for Abundant Living class or some other class or whether it's in a teaching, Usually the first time people hear that truth, they're kind of like telling Mackenzie that she was just given 30,000 shares of the Apple computer. It doesn't really sink in. The greatness of what that means doesn't really hit you. But when it does, when it does hit you, when that day comes when you really understand what that would be, well, then it's not just, it's bigger than than getting 30,000 shares of of Apple Computer. In fact, it's more like, when you really get it, it's more like if I told you I just would gave you a control, the controlling shares of Apple Computer. You basically now have been entrusted with this company. Suppose I did that, how would you feel? Probably excited, <laughs> but probably also a little bit intimidated, right? Because you'd realize the magnitude of the responsibility that goes with that. You'd realize that if if you didn't take care of this company, if you're the one that's in charge, if you're not making sure that the company's run right, 
pretty soon it could all be lost, right? In Ephesians chapter 4, you have the section that immediately follows on the heels of the revealing of the great mystery. This section that begins the practical application of the great mystery and what God tells us that we're to do after he's told us what he's given us. Because this great mystery that he's given us, this great mystery that we would be fellow heirs and of one body, joint partakers with Christ, that we would be God's habitation, that it would be Christ in us. When we get that, we understand this one body and what this means, and then God tells us, now that I've given you this, this is what I'd like you to do about it. You see, that's what Ephesians 4 is. Ephesians 4 begins with, I therefore, therefore, as a result of this, the result of this great mystery. The prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. God beseeches us. He implores us. He lovingly requests. You know, I was thinking about that. It's kind of funny. Um, that phrase, that word is used a number of times in the epistles. You know, I beseech. Paul often beseeched on the behalf of God by revelation, beseeched the people that they would do something with what God gave them. There's a lot of beseeching that God does to the people that you see in the Word of God. You know what you don't see in it? The, Paul beseeching God. You don't see it go the other way. You don't see Paul, by revelation, lovingly begging God. He just thanks God. We don't beseech God. We thank God. We thank God because God's already given to us all spiritual blessings. God's already given everything to us, and that's why when we pray, we, we don't beg Him. We don't, we don't even say, please, God, do this. We thank Him because He's already said He has and that He will meet every need. On the other hand, God has to beseech us. God's looking for us to respond. He's given us something so big, so great, and now he beseeches us that we would walk worthy of it, that we would not just let it go to waste, that we would take care of what he has entrusted us with, because God has entrusted us with this great mystery. God's made us stewards, it says, of the mysteries of God, stewards. A steward's one that's entrusted with something a steward of a household. He's entrusted with the running of that household. And if you were given the controlling interest of Apple Computer, you'd be the steward of that. Now, you might hire somebody to be your steward over it, but you'd have to make sure that that was properly taken care of. God requests that we properly take care of what he's given to us with this great mystery. And then he goes on to tell us specifically how that's done. How do we take care of that? In verse 2, this worthy walk is, an, is described. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, 
endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is the worthy walk. It is how we walk worthy of what God's given us. It's a walk of balance, a balance between what we've been given and what we do with it, a balance between the doctrine and the practical application of that doctrine. God wants us to walk in balance. Some people, they know a lot, but they don't live a lot. Some people do their best to live everything they know, but they just don't know enough. That's the case with Christians. There are Christians who are really enthused, really love God, but they're lacking in knowledge. They, they just don't know enough truth, and therefore, for all of their enthusiasm, for all of their love, for all of their zeal, they're, they're misdirected. They're not really carrying out what God would have them to do. And on the other hand, and I don't know which is worse, you've got some people that have tremendous knowledge. Boy, they, they know the truth. They know the truth, but they're just not doing anything with it. They're not enthused. They're not excited. God wants us to have a balance in our lives, a balance. To take care of this mystery, and the practical application of the mystery is that one body. Verse 4, where it said, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or verse 3, rather. Endeavoring, giving it our all to keep this unity. Not to make one, not, you know, not an ecumenical movement, not organic unity of just people getting together for greater numbers, but rather the spiritual unity of the mystery really living. You can't have the mystery really living if there's not a knowledge of it. But in order to do that, to see it live, that's done in a certain way. There's certain requirements. There's certain ways that we keep that mystery alive. And it begins with lowliness. And that's what we're going to look at specifically this evening. We're going to look at this quality, this first quality of it, lowliness. Lowliness. Now, you know, that doesn't sound like something when you first read it that you might want to do. You know, with all lowliness and meekness. Lowliness and meekness. Who wants that? Who wants to be lowly and meek? You know, it reminds me of George McFly. Remember Back to the Future? Marty McFly's father, when you first meet him? He was kind of, he seemed like what most people think of when you hear lowly and meek, right? Just kind of, oh, gosh, you know, Biff, I, you know, don't really want to ruffle any feathers. I'm a Christian, so I've just got to be kind of lowly and meek and humble, you know, because we can't act like we know too much and we don't want anybody thinking that, that we're, you know, in any way confident or, or bold, you know, that wouldn't be a good thing. And, we just got to be so lowly and meek and, you know, we're just Christians. God's everything. I'm nothing. That's what most people think of when they think of lowly and meek. And it's kind of, they think that because that's the connotation of those words today. Lowliness comes from the word humbleness, humility. But that's no better to most people. In fact, 
A derivative of humility is humiliated, and that's the worst thing you could possibly be, right? If you had the most embarrassing experience of your life, if you were absolutely disgraced, you'd say, I was just humiliated. Who wants to be humiliated? I don't want to be humiliated. But that comes from humility, the word. You see, we have to understand these words once again according to their biblical usage, not current. We have to understand what it means to be humble, to be lowly, according to God's word. I'll give you the Greek word, just so you can impress people that you know a Greek word. I'll give it to you so that you understand what this word does mean. It comes from the Greek word, um, and I'll probably mispronounce this, although now you can actually click on a word and have somebody else say it, and, and I listened to it like four times to try to get this right, but I probably still won't get it right. <laughs> um, tape, <laughs> I'm sure I did that wrong already. Tape no fronose, <laughs> sune, okay. Tape no frasune. That's just the way the guy did it. <laughs> I won't even bother spelling it to you because it's got about, you know, 30 letters in it. <laughs> but this word is translated humiliation of mind. It's, tran oh no, it's translated humbleness of mind, humility, humility of mind, lowliness, and lowliness of mind. Okay? So it's used seven times translated in that manner. Look at Philippians chapter 2, and we'll see one of the other places where this same word is used. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. That's that same word that was just lowliness back in Ephesians. And in other places, it's translated again, humility or humbleness of mind. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Okay, still a little confusing there. Still kind of sounds like I've got to think that I'm nothing. I've got to think that I'm unimportant because in lowliness of mind, I should esteem other better than myself. You might misunderstand that. You might think that what that means is you've got to consider that you are inferior to everybody that you meet. That, is that what it kind of sounds like? Mm -hmm. Let each esteem themselves lower than yeah. everybody else, others better than themselves. You know? So to be a Christian, you have to have an inferiority complex. You've got to believe that everybody else is better than you. Sounds like we're back with George McFly, right? Yeah. But that's not what it means when it talks about esteem other better than themselves. It means considering others ahead of yourself. That's what it means. It means that rather than being like most people in the world and being concerned about self and what's good for me, you're concerned about others. You know, I come from the generation that really promoted this idea of self. We're the ones that started the magazine called Self. <laughs> A magazine just completely dedicated for you being concerned with self. And I don't know, it must have had a great you know, readership because it seems like an awful lot of people now follow that policy of being concerned chiefly with self. 
But that's not what God wants. God doesn't want us to be focused on self, or another phrase, another word for that is selfish. God doesn't want us to be selfish. He wants us to think about others ahead of self. Jesus Christ thought of others ahead of self. That's what it talks about here. Do you think Jesus Christ went through life thinking that everybody was better than him? Okay. Well, I'm God's only begotten son, but these Pharisees are better than me. I don't think that was his attitude. I really don't. I don't think that he looked at everybody and thought, I'm inferior to them. That's not, that's not what he... But do you think he was humble? Yes. Yeah, sure, sure. Because it's not about feeling inferior. It's not about you feeling small. It's not about you thinking others are better than you. What it is about, and what you're going to see that it's about, is it's what you have your confidence in. What is it that you have confidence in? Is it self or is it God? You'll see that this word humbleness, humility, what it comes from, is set in opposition to pride, which stems from self-righteousness. Pride always stems from self-righteousness. Ironically, or paradoxically, so does condemnation and feelings of inferior, inferiority. Both stem from self-righteousness, from having some standard other than God's righteousness of what gives you worth. If your worth is derived from something other than what God did for you through Christ, then you are self-righteous. And when you, when you live up to those self, your standard of self-righteousness, then you're filled with pride, and when you fall short of it, you're filled with condemnation. But both are irrelevant, because our standard should not be our own righteousness, but what God did for us. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we see another place where this same word that I can't pronounce is, is translated. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll pick it up to get the context um, in verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now, I read all that far for you to see the context of those last couple of verses. Those last couple of verses about how we don't let our adversary, the roaring lion, get us. Because where it begins with is humbling ourselves unto God. God resists the proud, it says, and gives grace to the what? Humble. humble. It's either pride or humility. Pride or humility. You can read a lot about pride in, in Proverbs. That's, a, that's got a lot about the proud in it. 
And if you do, you'll pretty quickly get the idea that this is not a good thing. That kind of pride, again, understand it in its context. You know, is it wrong? Well, I'm, you know, I'm proud that I graduated from college. Oh, I can't be proud that I did. No, that's not what it's talking about. Pride, again, what? But if you take that, that degree, and that becomes your basis for your worth, now you have crossed the line. Do you understand that? Mm -hmm. It's one thing to be proud of your accomplishment. It's another thing to make your accomplishment your measure of worth. That's a whole different category. We'll get there. Look at Proverbs. We'll, we'll look at one verse that talks about it. Proverbs chapter 29 Proverbs 29, verse 23 says, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. A man's pride will bring him low. That's, that's ironic, isn't it? We were talking about lowliness, okay? But it's pride that actually brings you to a low estate, truly a low estate. Pride, pride. It's pride. When you are proud and prideful against God, and against the knowledge of God. When you think you know more than God, then you've got a problem. That's what pride is. When you think, and boy, there are sure a lot of people nowadays that do think they know more than God. Oh, God, who believes that? Oh, the Bible, why? You believe that? Yeah, I do, I do. And you know what? I think I'm the wiser for doing it. If I'm right, you know, then you're in big trouble. If you're right, what the hell's the difference? Excuse yeah. my... <laughs> right? If you're right, and this ends, and I'm just dust in the ground, uh, it didn't hurt me any by believing, that I, by believing in God, right? But on the other hand, if you could have had eternal life, and instead you're just dust in the ground, you've been pretty foolish, right? Yeah. Sure, sure. It was Rufus Mosley that, you know, talked about, you know, we're having such a great time going to heaven. If heaven wasn't there, we wouldn't care because we had such a great time going. You know, that's the, that's the, the reality of it. Nothing beats the Word of God. Nothing beats it, just on its own merit, just on right now. If there was nothing more than living now, the peace that it brings, the joy that it brings, the fulfillment that it brings, all that God's Word brings to an individual, if that was the end of the story, man, you still had it made. And you know, every, every clown that doesn't believe the book, but has got some alternative of how to have peace and joy and, and prosperity and success in life, all, it's all principles that are stolen from God's Word in any way. So, they get everything but the eternal life. <laughs> or, they don't know and operate any of it, and they just live miserably. Look at Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. This is a great <clears throat> parable that Jesus Christ shares about humility. We'll pick it up in verse 7, Luke 14, 7. And he put forth a parable to those that were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, when thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room. Okay, so the way that weddings were then, okay, you had separate rooms. Instead of like tables, 
you know, and if you were at the head table, that was really, you know, nowadays that's cool, except I, I know head tables are kind of disappearing. But, you know, where you are in position two, like the bridal party kind of still designates some degree of how important you are. Well, that's how these rooms were. They had different rooms. And, you know, what room you were at, boy, that seat determined how important you were. So he's telling them, when you come to a wedding, don't go to the highest room. Don't assume that, you know, you've, you've been given the, the spot of honor here. Lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him, and he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, uh, hey, uh, Dylan, um, I hate to say this, but you kind of kind of move and, and let him take, you know, your place. No, a little farther down, a, a little farther down. That'd be pretty embarrassing, right? Well, that's what he's telling them. Don't do that. That's not a good idea. Don't, don't think that you're the most important. Go down to the lowest one, he says. When thou art bidden, verse 10, go and sit down in the lower room, lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then thou shalt have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. You'd rather be that situation, right? You'd rather just, you know, I'm just going, oh, no, no. Are you kidding me? You're, why, you're my guest of honor. Come and sit right next to me. That's what you want. Verse 11. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. There's a great principle. The one that exalts himself is going to be brought down. The one that humbles himself is going to be raised. In life, we don't have to be concerned about trying to get our own recognition. We don't have to go through life trying to make sure that, you know, people are, are giving us the due respect or the recognition we deserve. Recognition, I read once, is one of the most driving forces in people. Everybody wants recognition. They want to be recognized for what they do, and you understand that. But in life, it's a mistake to try to make sure you get it for yourself. If instead, you focus on serving others, if you focus on help, if you focus not on self, but on others, God will make sure that you're exalted. Isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. Look at Luke chapter 18. Here's another great one. Luke 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain, which trusted in themselves that they were what? Righteous. Righteous and despised others. So here's a parable that's directed at people that trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down their nose at everybody else. You know, what do we call that? Holier than thou? You know, a holier than thou attitude? That they thought that they were so good, that they were so right. You know, and sometimes the most self righteous people are the atheist. That's really true. But boy, those people that were like that, he's, he's talking to them. Verse 10 Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. Not a Republican, a publican. Okay. <laughs> Tax collector. They were about as well liked. They were even, believe it or not, they were even more despised then than they are now. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, with himself. This is how the Pharisee prays. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, <laughs> unjust, or adulterers, 
or even as this publican. <laughs> you know, it's just would be so funny. I, I secretly hope someday somebody does that at fellowship. God, I thank you that I'm so good and I'm not like that guy. <laughs> Can you imagine that? That's what this guy does. You know, the nerve, right? And he goes on to make his case. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He tells God what a good guy he is. And boy, that's how people think. They think, God's got to give me a place in heaven. I'm just so good. I do all this stuff. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, that ending's kind of like the same one that we saw in the other parable. And we understand the point that he makes even more from this one, that it's a matter of do you trust in your own righteousness or not. That humbling yourselves and not exalting yourself, it's a matter of what do you trust in. We won't take the time to read it, because I don't think we'd have the time to get through it. But that record of Paul in Philippians, where he talks about having confidence in the flesh. Boy, that just so relates to what we're looking at here. Paul says, boy, if anybody could have reason to trust in the flesh, I more. I went to Harvard. No, I went to Princeton. I guess that's better than Harvard now. Or always was. I just didn't know it. I went to Princeton, you know, and, and my family, you know, they came over before the Mayflower. And we're in the highest circles, and we've got all the money, and I had the highest career and all the standing and all that stuff that I could have confidence in the flesh all this stuff that I could be prideful about, I consider nothing more than a pile of horse manure compared to what I gain through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what humility is all about. You can't bring me down, no word is on my mind.